this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. My name is Joy Gilfillan. I'm president of the Restorative Community Coalition and the host of I Change Justice uh, podcast. And with us today is Shanae Kelt. She also has been hosting some of the Restorative Community Coalition podcasts, the I Change Justice series. And it's a real true pleasure to bring her to the platform today to talk about the Restore Life Center business plan. And the the reason why Irene envisioned this so many years ago, why it is so dreadful, drastically needed and really in demand today. And there's nobody better than people who have lived experience working in and off the streets, in and out of the jail system to actually understand it. Then, in my opinion, Shanae, she's she's been working around the periphery of the, the issue and inside the issue and outside the issue, figuring out how we could get it done and why we need a Restore Life Center. Before I start, I want to share with you um, a screen about a video about our restorative community coalition to put our work in context. Our mission at the RCC is that we are in the business of reclaiming lives and we're an action-oriented coalition advocating for restorative, economic, systemic, and social change. And what we do is we stand with the silenced. We've discovered that there are many, 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 many people, far more people than you think, who are silenced who are unable to talk about what's going on in our government services, what's going on inside the jail system, outside the jail system. For example, not only are the people who have been incarcerated silenced and afraid to speak because they can get in further trouble if they speak, but the people who are family members of people inside the system can be silenced because they don't want to put their incarcerated person or the person who is out on parole in the crosshairs of of drawing attention to people. Then there are people who are silenced because they work in the system and they've sworn certain oaths of office to not talk about this or that or the other thing. So they have to live with oaths of confidentiality. And then there's people who work for the military or for the government who have basically sworn an oath to follow the leader, period. And I discovered this when I was working with, Um, when I was running a political campaign and I found out that people who work for a particular president and are just work for the president, their government military, they can't say anything against the military or the politicians because it would be considered treason or voting, you know, speaking against their loyal person. Then there's other people who are silenced because they work inside the system and their jobs are on the line. And then, I mean, there's just list after list after list. And eventually you get down to the bottom of the heap. There's only a few people who have the courage, the ability, and the knowledge to be able to speak up. And that's why it's such a pleasure to have someone like Shanae here willing to speak to us. But I want to 
go down and share with you that what our coalition does is that we help people who are dealing with the criminal justice system or the criminal legal system, as it's now being called, because we've discovered that our system is full of sand traps, bottlenecks, trauma traps, you name it, that keep people caught in the system. So we are developing our website has these buttons that you can click and it will give you an idea of how your voice can matter, how we can work together in a web. And then we've started talking about it in the I Change Justice podcast. You can find that on Spotify. And we just posted an episode today about what's going on this week and how people can get involved. The business to reclaim lives. It is striking that uh, the prison population in this country has increased, it has quadrupled uh, since 1970s. I started the Restorative Community Coalition seven and a half years ago. When we started, we were the Reentry Coalition and we were the first in the state. 80% of our people in prison are nonviolent. Um, 97% of the people in prison will return to community. The last five years I've spent working with Irene Morgan and many different people in the community. We have interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people of all walks of life. I've been talking to criminals that I never expected to talk to, people who we label as criminals, but you know what I found out? They're just human beings. One particular person that comes to mind said that uh, she had been in jail dozens of times uh, by the time she was 21. She cost society uh, $250,000, a quarter of a million dollars in those eight years while she was in and out of jail and prison. Within five months and $1,500, she was a fully functional citizen, a taxpayer going to school, learning how to be the person that society expected her to be. And I believe it's our charge as society to help them be functional so that we can save tax dollars and, more importantly, lives. I was in five prisons in eight years, and I didn't receive a single day of treatment in any one of those prisons. We do know that more than 2.7 million children in this country have at least one incarcerated parent. I was really angry that my dad went to prison. Um, I had a lot of problems in elementary school. I got in a lot of trouble. Um, didn't know how to socialize with kids. You know, I'd see other kids with their families and wondered why my family wasn't like that. One of the things that I realized when I started looking at what it takes for a person who has been incarcerated comes back to society and has to re-enter, I had no idea the barriers they face. Going to prison is not punishment. Getting out of prison is when you get punished. And you can't just wake up one day and, you know, and function like a normal human being if you, you know, spend the majority of your life on bars. People don't get out of prison wanting to go back to prison. The people that don't want to get out of prison, they don't get out of prison. They stay there, trust me. The problem is that the longer people are locked up, the harder and harder it is to stay out of prison. They need to be allowed to move forward in their life. The barriers are so huge that most people can't do it. That's why the recidivism rate is so high. justice is uh, just simply the victim and the perpetrator and the community members that are involved get together and the victim gets to be heard, gets to be understood. Restorative justice is, is probably the, the most important thing in, the, in stopping 
this cycle. People truly do not understand um, the price that kids face when their loved ones are pulled out of their lives. I hate jail. I'd say the hardest time in my life was having to touch my parents through glass. At the root of all social dysfunction, at the root of our economic failures, at the root of what I call a societal depression, we have to eventually call a timeout, use restorative justice, use intervention techniques, use any tool we have to be able to stop the cycle of violence at the first point of intervention possible and turn it over and help people heal so that we can recover our society. The only option is to invest in empowerment, education, leadership, free enterprise, relationship training, conflict resolution. How do we actually help people become productive in society? That's a far better investment. The cycle of destruction, anger, punishment, addiction, absolutely does not work for anybody. If we turn it upside down, we can build, lead, and innovate change. We can do it, and we must. Thank you. What really impacted me about this project was you just don't get taught about these things. The disparity between how much money we as a society spend on those in prison versus how much we could be spending to help them re-enter society. I never realize the impacts it has on the family of someone who's been to prison or jail. So there's a series of additional podcasts that are in our website that you can go to if you click on here, jail tax abuse. This is an important series that that movie that I talked about, about investing in people rather than a bigger jail. This one is a very powerful movie to watch, but this is a complete argument about what happened before. And then you can click here to read, watch the, or download the noble cause corruption report. There's other reports in here, but there's a whole series of videos. This is a businessman, Rob Lieb, who was one of the panelists on our no jail tax uh, presentation. This is predatory leadership by Matt Gramer. He's a private prison guard and he spoke, he's written a book called understanding predatory leadership and he was employed by CoreCivic and talks about why it's not, not a good thing. Follow the money, David Camp, with an accountant. For some reason, I just see that his video is missing in action. But his articles in Northwest Citizen are still here. And he was an accountant who absolutely shared with us that if we pass this tax, our county would go bankrupt. This is a teacher, Western Washington University professor who has a background in um, incarceration in black and various kinds of slavery and issues and, and um, prejudice. He was the person who was fight, fighting for the um, imagined no cages of the abolitionist movement. Then we have Juliet Daniels. She has 20 years, 30 years in uh, criminal defense. And she's an attorney from Texas who also got her law degree here and wrote a whole pile of articles in here about why uh, it's an illusion that people are safe and free. And she's got some amazing pieces in here on mental health. And then, and then she did some more generate um, more broader things that were amazing to understand what was going on in the Whatcom County justice system. And then Tip Johnson has been absolutely a hero in my mind. 
He gave me backup and courage, and he's done a lot of the work in understanding the economic problems from a citizen perspective. And then I close the argument down here. And this was one of the original PowerPoints that we did, one of the original conferences we did that taught us why we need to not do depreciation, but do appreciation um, as an investment in the community. So with that, I'm going to take us back to Shanae. I think, Shanae, it would be extraordinary for you to give us your own personal story as to who you are and why I played that video clip first. Sure. First, I want to say hello to everyone. Welcome. If you're new, if I haven't met you before, I'm really glad to meet you. I'm glad you're here. So that person that Irene was specifically talking about that they helped with $1,500, that was me. Um, I, I have about 25 minutes to tell you like my life, right? So I've tried to shrink it down and do a three to five minute never works. So 25 should be good. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, at the, I think when I think I was about nine or 10 months old, I was, uh, beaten by a man that my mother left me with. Uh, I was put in the hospital for nine weeks as an infant um, and released back to my mother. And she told the doctors that I fell off the table and they gave me back to her. And then I stayed with my mother until I was almost seven years old. And I can remember things. I can remember being in diapers. I can remember playing with matches and catching my mom on fire while she was asleep in a sleeping bag on the couch. I can remember a lot of trauma, being locked in my bedroom, um, not being able to get food, climbing up on a counter by myself in the morning to feed myself a can of peaches and a piece of toast with peanut butter on it, and then walk myself to school. When I turned six or seven, uh, my mother got arrested again. She'd been arrested many times. And my grandparents actually petitioned for me to be adopted by them while she was in jail. So we did that. And I moved in with my grandparents, who I didn't really know. It was my dad's family. So then, you know, my dad was in and out of prison during that time. So I was in uh, kindergarten and first grade. I went to two different schools. And then I went to second grade at another new school. And then in third grade, I went to another school and where we lived. And I was raised in Burlington, Washington. And I was there from third grade through high school. Well, till I was a teenager anyway. And during that time, my grandparents, you know, they gave me everything I needed. We were upper, upper middle class. There's nothing I, I didn't have except for communication. You know, I, being my grandparents, their older generation, they didn't talk about my mother and father. They didn't talk about feelings. They didn't, you know, um, validate anything for me. And let's see. So during that time, I went through the D.A.R.E. program. I was the top, the top D.A.R.E. graduate. I got to meet the sheriff. I got the bear, all this stuff. Um, I did know that my dad was a drug addict and my mother as well and an alcoholic because my grandparents surely talked about that, but they didn't talk about healing, nothing healthy about that. You know, it was always don't want to be like them and you're just going to be like them. If I was acting out, you're acting just like them or whatever. And all negative thoughts, right? And also not to mention, they were very religious. My, I was raised Southern Baptist, so I was in church three days a week. I already knew I was going to hell. Uh, my parents were going to go to hell, so that played a huge part in my psyche. At the age of 15, my grandfather um, dropped me off at my dad's. My dad had been, I don't know, three or four times in and out of prison. 
he lived in Issaquah and Burlington to Issaquah. I don't know how many miles it is, but it's pretty far away. And he dropped me off with a bag of clothes and pretty much wrote me off. And my grandma was dying of cancer at that time. And my dad, you know, being a drug addict and also in shock, now he has his teenage daughter living with him in this tiny little camper trailer. You know, he didn't really know what to do with me, right? So he, I caught him doing drugs, so he did drugs with me. Uh, he caught me drinking, so he made me drink more. Oh. It was just, he had no idea what to do. So that eventually turned into, you know, we finally moved back, and yet I was homeless, uh, 15, 16 years old, homeless, couch surfing with friends, trying to figure out how I'm going to get back in school and get back to at least some of the things that brought me joy, which was sports. I played every sport. Uh, I excelled at sports, actually, and I did really well in school when I was in school. Let's see. So then let, I was moved around again my junior year of high school. I was living with an aunt. She found a cannabis pot in my room. So she kicked me out and told me I could go live with this other aunt that I didn't even know I had who ironically smoked pot. So I could go there and I could get high and I could go to school and it would be fine. Right. So that's what I did. And then one day I came home from school and the whole house was empty. Well, I didn't know about this aunt was wanted in 12 states by the FBI for welfare fraud and had abandoned me and her own daughter, um, took off with all her animals. She had horses and everything and just left the state. And so there I was again, now 17 years old, three months prior to my graduating high school, homeless again, still using drugs, drinking, self-medicating, whatever I could do. And uh, eventually about a year later, maybe less than a year, I got pregnant. So then I got pregnant and I was um, not even 18 yet. And my son's dad and I, we grew cannabis to support our lifestyle. We um, drove around. There was never a time when we had less than $10,000 cash in our car uh, or pounds of marijuana. And so that was what we did. But because of the, there was some positivity that had come out of what my grandparents taught me. I had a bunch of guilt, right? Like I know that I'm not supposed to be living like this with this child on the way, but I don't know really how to get out of it. I mean, even my OBGYN knew that I smoked pot and that that was our lifestyle, but she, she didn't say anything. Nobody sent me to get any services the whole time. Right. So there's like multiple times in this journey where people could have stepped in. They could have taken me by my hand and said, I know you don't know the answers and I know you're really afraid right now, but we're going to help you, you know, and, and, and that that's key for, for where I'm at now. Um, so what you're, what you mean, slow down for a second, Sinead, what you mean is had somebody uh, compassionately intercepted you and looked at you and said, you know what, you don't know how to negotiate this world. You don't even know mm-hmm. how to navigate at all. Can we help you and here help you get back on the, on a path that's productive. And there was nothing like that. No. Not at all. It was like, it was as if looking back, it was like, nobody wanted to get involved. Right. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? Typical. I mean, that's our culture. Like nobody wants to get involved in other people's family business. Right. And so, um, so that's what happened. And uh, my son's dad. And so then eventually, you know, obviously because of the cannabis, we started getting in trouble with the law. And eventually I started using other drugs because I was self-medicating and cannabis wasn't doing it. And 
um, you meet all kinds of people in the same kind of situations and they're doing other drugs. And so I ended up doing that. And um, at the age, you know, my son, let's back up a little. My son, when he was born, here's this little human that I loved so much. But I knew from my own experience that I did not want him to experience anything like what I had from the age of birth to six years old that I went through like with my mother. And so I, I, I don't know how this happened. It, it's a divine intervention or whatever, but my family stepped in and I signed adoption papers for my son to be adopted by my family. And um, so they did that. And that gave me pretty much, it gave my addiction a free, you know, free pass. Like you might as well just self-destruct. So I completely was addicted to cocaine and I was a dirty, rotten junkie. I was, you know, um, stereotypical uh, IV drug user. And I would rob, steal, lie, whatever to get what I needed. And um, that was about, let's see, from the age of 21 until I was 24, I was on self-destruct mode. I overdosed multiple times. I wasn't allowed in people's homes when I was selling them drugs because they didn't want me to overdose in their house. Um, I ended up pregnant again. And I didn't know I was pregnant because I didn't have a period when I was using. So it was about five months in when I found out, okay, you're really pregnant. And I didn't know how to stop. I didn't want to stop. I wanted to die. And I really didn't care about the baby at the time either. I didn't care about anything except for either being high or dying. And so um, luckily, I um, had my son in the hospital and he was pretty much okay when he was born. All the fingers and toes, mentally, all his little things checked off. But um, he has mild cerebral palsy. So he has, he's had about a dozen surgeries on his Achilles tendon because he was born with a, one of his feet was like tippy toe and then on his right side and his right hand muscles don't work correctly. He's 17 years old now. And actually, um, it's been 17 years since the last time I was arrested. I got arrested a month after he was born for the very last time. And, um, I was sent to prison. Finally, you know, I had been offered drug court, but I paid for a lawyer. So I got out of drug court because they, you know, if you pay a lawyer, you can get out of anything. And that's what happened to me. I paid a lawyer and they got me out of drug court. I did 90 days for a three year prison charge. And I was like, oh, if I have money, I can just keep paying my way out of all this stuff. And so um in 2005, I was sentenced to 60 months in prison, and it was accumulation of multiple charges had to do with drugs and stealing and, um, you know, all those things that get wrapped up in there. And part of me was relieved. Like, I just had that big sigh. That's kind of what I did in the courtroom when they when I had to do my DNA swab. It was like this big sigh, you know, like, finally, I'm done, maybe, you know, um, but I still had a lot of anger. And when I got to prison, I was um, in fights a lot. I spent a lot of time in segregation. Uh, one time I beat up this girl so badly that her kid was afraid to visit her because he didn't recognize her face. And that moment when I was told that, it was this aha moment like you haven't been on drugs. You have everything you could possibly basic needs met, right? So there's something going on and you need help. And that was the first time I ever recognized that it's my responsibility 
to um, be accountable. So I signed up to get my GED while I was in prison. I, um, I knew there was a behavior modification program called Therapeutic Community that you have to be sentenced to. It's not typically a voluntary program. So I actually fought to get myself into that program. I had to lie on a mental health evaluation. Um, the first time I did the eval, they said I didn't qualify. They said, you don't have co-occurring disorders. You don't have mental health. You do have substance abuse. You can't be in the program. You can reevaluate in 90 days. And so I thought, well, I'm going to reevaluate and I'm just going to lie. I'm just going to lie. So I did the mental health eval and I just acted crazy so I could get into that program. And I got in and I did the program for twice as long as everyone else. And it was a amazing behavior modification in your face. Like every choice you were making, every word you spoke was raised to your, your awareness. Like, are the words you're saying true? Are they necessary? Is it kind um, to yourself and to other people? And it really taught me to take accountability, to respect myself, to respect other people, to learn what I value, that I am valuable. Um, and I just want to mention too, that while I was there, I had relationships with women. I'd never had relationships with women. Never. My grandmother who raised me, she worked 12 hours a day. She was gone. And when she was home, she didn't use her words very much. My grandfather ran the house and he was very aggressive. And he was um, what they, they call small man syndrome. He was five foot four, Navy retired veteran, and everything was his way or no way. And he was also sexually abusive. So I had no relationships with women um, to speak of until I was in prison. And I made friends with women who were doing things good. They were making programs to teach each other how valuable they were, teach each other how to respect each other. Yes. So during this period of time, what years was this as far as on the decade scale? Because I've learned that there were programs that existed before and a lot of those programs are not here today. So, so what years was this? I was in, I was at Purdy at WCCW from, um, I got sent October, 2005 and I was there through the end of 2008 and then, uh, and then I went to work release, which was an opportunity that not many people get because there's not a lot of bids for that. But, um, actually to bring that up, the therapeutic community program ended at 30 while I was there. They called yeah. us all into the office and they just read our names and they said, you're going to go here. You're going to go there. We're not doing it here anymore. They ended it. And, um, it's really unfortunate because I know a lot of women I'm still friends with that I was there with who are still rocking their lives, like being successful women. And I, I think a lot of it had to do with that. Um, and it also teaches you solidarity. For a second, uh, uh, sorry about that. I see co-hosts, and then uh, please uh, take care of microphones because yeah. I just did it. Keep going, Shnei. Um, I think learning that solidarity and that you can actually trust another human being with your feelings, that was a big part of it, too. Like, how can I trust you? I mean, it took a long time. It took me 18, 24 months to even start trusting the women that were in this program. Um in addition to my GED, I, I uh, took some human services classes while I was there. Uh, I knew that I survived what I survived so that I can help other people. Um, that was the message that I got. 
when I did four months in isolation, I had nothing to do except write. So I was writing to my higher power, whatever that was. It was my time, my turn to figure out what that was for me. And so I just would write letters, you know, Um, they started off really angry and like, how could this happen? And poor me and all this stuff. But as I progressed and I started accepting what happened, letting go of the past and looking forward, it was it was just a jumping point for me to um, continue helping people. So um, about six months short of my release date, I got sent to Bellingham. And that's how I ended up meeting the Whatcom Reentry Coalition at that time, which is now the RCC. And um, even work release was a great idea. I mean, it was a culture shock because I couldn't run. I used to run every day in prison. I would run twice a day. And that was a mental thing. It was awesome. But when you're in work release, there's more rules. You can't run. If you run, they think you're trying to escape. Um, if you get to go to the gym once a week. Um, there's all these things that I had in my regimen that I didn't get anymore. So now here I have to restart, right? Um, and then when I finally did get out, I went to an Oxford house in Bellingham, clean and sober housing. And it was really great. Uh, I really enjoyed it because it reminded me of being back in prison, right? With those same kind of like-minded people. Um, and then I moved out uh, with a boyfriend and that turned out badly. He relapsed. And so then I relapsed. We got in a fight, argument, and I left. Um, but during that time that I was living there, I went to Opportunity Council to get help with a power bill. And I was telling the lady my story and someone overheard. And his name is Jim Kozad. I love him to death. I wish I could see him. But he kind of piped up and said, hey, can you come talk to me when you're done? And I said, uh, sure. And he invited me to my first meeting for the Whatcom Reentry Coalition. And that's how I met Irene. And um, she she said to me, she said, how can we help you? <laughs> and I was like thinking, first of all, uh, I thought all the help that I got was done when I left prison. Now, I, you know, so uh, it was like a shock to me. Like, I don't know. I really didn't know. And they helped me figure out how to navigate, how to use my story for good, how to use my story to empower myself and other people how to budget money, how to make money, how to pay bills, how to plan for next week. You know, I only, I only knew how to plan for that day. I get up in the morning. What am I doing today? You know what I mean? Um, so I have a slide to show you real quick. I'm going to share my screen if you don't mind. No, go for it. Um, this is me. And I want to say that the reason she's sharing this story with you is really important to understand. This is not about Shanae. No. This is about the challenges and the mindset that she had as she went from phase to phase to phase because she's had to overcome multiple different shapes and, and elements of this mindset to be able to get to the point that she is here so that she she's able to share the story in a way that we can actually move it forward, the whole story and the whole situation forward. So keep going, Shanae. Uh, real quick, I got to get my daughter off the bus soon, but um, real quick, I just want to, I'll just leave this up for a minute. So these are all my booking photos from the age of 17 until I was 24 years old in and out of jail. I went to treatment six different times unsuccessfully. I uh, had a mental health counselor. I went to therapy during the, all these 
pictures. The Restore Life Center is important to me because this didn't have to happen to me. And this, these photos, this happens. This life-sucking cycle happens to millions of people in our country. Our services are set up to make people continue to fail because the system gets paid when we fail. Okay, this makes me really emotional looking at these pictures because today I am I am a licensed Washington State licensed life insurance agent. I'm a college graduate. I'm a mother of a six-year-old daughter. After my two sons were adopted, I was able to be able to be a mother, like really be involved and be a mom. I'm the PTA president at my daughter's school. I am the store manager at a place that is a nonprofit thrift store that helps cats. It's giving back to the community, you know. I am a Sunday school teacher at my church. This is really important for people to see because me today is not me there. $1,500 12 years ago, and here I am, a contributing tax-paying member paying now i'm paying for these same people the same person i'm paying for her to sit in prison and not get any services and not get any help and not get any healing and i wanted to bring up real quick before i go we were talking about earlier the housing crisis right and people that are sitting in prison there's no housing well the problem with that is the one of the biggest problems with it is that there's no restorative justice happening with each of those inmates. If there was restorative justice happening with those inmates, they would have housing because their family or whoever was involved when they committed a crime would have made amends, forgiven them, and continued to support them and grow together. And so I just, I just really emphasize the Restore Life Center and the Hub is going to be a revolutionary across our country, maybe even globally. Having restorative justice doesn't mean just booking this girl who's wrapped in a blanket that weighs less than 100 pounds. It means involving who is she around? Who are the people that she loves? Maybe they aren't around. Maybe they need to be reconnected and have that, that healing happen. That's why I'm so passionate about the RCC and what we do. Um, I also am a case manager for RCC and I have a couple clients, one of which who just got her very first job ever in her life, her way, you know, she was a drug dealer her whole life. And because we got to help her and I got to use my story to help her, she's employed now and she's a mother and she's a daughter and she's sober. So if you're watching this or you get to see it after I'm gone, just reach out, email us, get on our I Change Justice. Be a part of the solution. Don't sit in the problem anymore. That's all. Wow. Sinead, go. how, how many more minutes do you have to talk I have to, to go. Anybody? I have to go, actually. You do have to go? Yeah. Okay. Can you? Okay. Thank you so Sorry. much. Yeah. Thank you, Sinead. Thank you. I love, I love you. you so much. I love Thank you, you very much. <laughs> have fun. Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to go ahead and talk about what would the Restore Life Center look like and how could this be, but I'd like to welcome back to the show where we're going to hear from the people who attended our symposium to share with us what they experienced listening to Shanae's story. Any comments? Well, it was, it was a gift. It was honest, it was real. And the fact that she is in touch with the various aspects of both who she was and what was impacting her and able to share that in a way that 
uh, I could at least appreciate some of what was happening with her journey. And I guess the other thing is she's successfully navigated because most people don't even in the addiction world don't know a lot of people who have. And people need success stories. Part of the problem is that people, we, that's part of what I appreciate. And I was listening to this and I'm thinking about this. I was just thinking how when I talk about oppression is, a, is an addiction. Racism is an addiction. <laughs> and uh, the, the, the whole COVID thing where we have people who, um, you know, won't put their mask on in, in terms of protecting others or who won't take the vaccination. And that's part of the issue in terms of folks who are willing to still not create humanity or believe in humanity. They won't be willing to take the vaccination that allows them to allow everybody's humanity it's kind of, I mean, I just was playing with some of that as I was listening to the story. It was not just her story. It was resonating to me in some multiple levels about within our culture and how those behaviors systemically operate and play themselves out as well. So I was very, um, very appreciative of that. Anybody else? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm... <laughs> Okay, I can actually. I, I keep crying when I listen to her, so I I had the video off. Um, yeah, Shane is um, is one of the bravest people I've ever met, and um, and I mean she comes across so real and so true of who she is in the video, um, but uh, she's such a bright light, and uh, I know that there are so many others that, that are dimmed down and in pain and whatever is possible to help these people be who they are and shine as they are. And as she said, her entire uh, life is about helping others. And, and basically her experience gives her a, um, a unique opportunity to be the solution. And um, and that is what's so powerful about her. She's a really special human being. Anybody else want to speak to this? Kasha, go ahead. So I think she's not only a special human being, but she is the the sarcastic light at the end of the tunnel for so many. And uh, and uh, just listening to her story. It really, you know, makes me emotional. And uh, my personal experience with homeless is just um, kind of ugly and nasty, I would say. I've been, on some occasion, I've been trying to help some people here and there with a very small gesture, but those gestures, they were never received the right way. So, so, so those experiences pushed me away from homeless. And, and I get goosebumps when I see them on corners standing and uh, begging for money. And, and uh, the next day I see them stealing and doing other things. It's kind of not good. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, today listening to the project of the guy who was presenting earlier and to her story gives me a hope that those people that they are lost in time and space for so many reasons, they still have a chance to come back and and, and, and shine with whatever they have inside of them. Because everybody has a purpose. 
and everybody has a, a chance to be loved, to be respected, and to live their life with uh, with uh, the purpose and happiness. So I appreciate, uh, uh, you know, this the fact that I'm here listening to it, and uh, I wish to to be a part and then witness more of those stories. Thank you. A lot of the I want to just comment that a lot of if you read between the lines. And she made the statement, but it's easy to miss it. She had no one to tell her what she should do. She had all kinds of experience on what not to do, but she didn't know how to break the cycle of what she should do. So without mentors, without coaches, without training, without people who have lived experience who understand, without people who can tell you how to operate in a world she knew nothing about. She came and she did a te- um a panel one time with Debbie David, who you guys heard from early this morning and a couple other people. And then Irene and I, we hosted a a choices and consequences panel in an eighth grade class out in Everson. Thank you all for joining us on the I change justice podcast. Today's episode was all about listening to people in our community who are dealing with the trauma, the civic trauma of the last few years and how it's affected us and how this is directly related to the challenges we have as, as the restorative community coalition deals with issues of incarceration. Many people over the last couple of years have dealt with home isolation, being shut off from friends and family, not being able to grieve with people, not being able to participate fully in the community and in historically what has been a civic inter, you know, interactivity that actually was silenced for the last two years. So there's actually a lot of parallels between what happens when someone gets arrested and taken out of the commercial system and out of our community and then suddenly they come back. It's very similar to what many people have felt over the last couple of years as the COVID crisis shut down our commercial system, shut down our government offices, shut down civic interactions, shut down our our family groups and completely changed the way we do business in the community. So the reason we did the conversations was to be able to open up the valve of, of interactivity again to listen to the impacts on the public. we Our coalition will be publishing a report soon from what we've learned from hosting these, these full week-long conversations, and we'll be publishing the reports. We'll be putting more video online. But this was just a cutout that was audio quality for an audio report given back to the public on the I Change Justice podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and please enjoy the other episodes that will be coming soon. Thank you. At the end of this session, where we've heard from many different people about lived experience, about what's going on with the criminal justice system, about why we need to do rehabilitation and social change, and why it is that we learn to see people differently, it's very, very important that we take the time to honor and bless those who do a lot of the background work for us, the people who open uh, ceremonial and sacred space, the people who close it. 
And one of those people is Ava Sikowski. And we're going to close this episode with her singing a song that she wrote. And it's called, Do You Recognize Me? And it's an amazing, heartfelt story where she was really thinking about who do we see and who are we really and what is in the space between all of us as we navigate through life and have our perceptions challenged constantly. It's time to start thinking differently. And Ava's song is a tremendous tribute to the human beings that often we do not see who are standing right in front of us. So thank you, Ova. And I close the presentation with this song. But all I did was run away And as 